Om Namo Bhagavate Sri Arnachala Ramanaya. Uh, namaskaram. Um, firstly, I'd like to apologize for the fact that I have, in the last couple of months, I've not been doing the, um, the verses of Akshramalai. I will uh, return to doing so um, uh, maybe in a month or two, but uh, for the time being, I'm just um, doing questions and answers. <clears throat> and um, I've been starting off recent me meetings by answering um, one of the many questions that I'm asked in um, in the comments on my YouTube channel. Um, unfortunately, I don't have uh, time to reply to all of them, but uh, but some of them I try to reply to during these meetings. Um, and I've been mostly I've been selecting uh, comments that are asking about the practice of self-investigation because this is really the, the the core of Bhagavan's teachings. This is what Bhagavan's teachings are all about. Um, so today also I'm going to be uh, I, I will answer one such question um, or one such set of questions. Um, but before I do so, I just want to say. Bhagavan's teachings are extremely simple, and the practice he has taught us is also extremely simple. But though it is simple, it is also very deep and subtle. And because it's a deep and subtle path, it, in order to practice it correctly, we need to understand it correctly. If we don't correctly understand what Bhagavan means by investigating ourselves, Obviously, we can't. We, we, if we don't understand, we can't put it into practice. And in order to understand what Bhagavan is talking about, it's it's not just a matter of answering the question how to do self inquiry. We need to understand Bhagavan's teachings uh, comprehensively and coherently, because all his teachings are pointing towards this practice. And in order to understand what this very simple but subtle practices, we need to understand it in the context of his whole teaching, because his whole teachings are that is the, the core of all his teachings. What all his teachings are pointing at is this simple practice. If we understand his, uh, his teachings correctly, then what is the practice will become clear to us. Or rather, to put it in a better way, to the extent to which we understand his teachings, to that extent, the, the, the practice, what is the practice, will become clear to us. Um, because none of us can say that we've understood it perfectly. It's a matter, of, because this is a deep and subtle path, it, as we go deeper in following this path, our understanding becomes more and more refined and it becomes clearer and clearer to us what the practice is the deeper we go into it so none of us can say we've understood it perfectly but the more we follow this path the clearer it becomes because this path in this path we're going inwards we're going back towards the our source. <clears throat> Our source means the original source from which we've risen as ego. That source is pure awareness. So the deeper we go within, and 
the more we are immersing us, immersing ourselves, so to speak, in that light of pure awareness, and the clearer it becomes. Um, so, in order to understand it correctly, we need to read Bhagavan's teachings carefully. And by reading his teachings carefully, I mean reading his original writings or reliable translations of them, because Bhagavan has expressed his teachings most clearly and unambiguously in his own original writings. Um, <clears throat> uh, but reading is one thing. We not only need to read, we also need to, reading is what is called sravana. We also need to think deeply about it. In order to understand what we are re reading, we need to think about it deeply. That is what is called manana. Because <coughs> Bhagavan is always, whatever Bhagavan says or writes, there's always much more implied than appears on the surface. So, so to speak, the, the meaning of Bhagavan's verses is one thing. The implication is another thing. So to understand the implication of his teachings requires the manana, the thinking deeply about it, to grasp what he's talking about. And then most important of all, of course, is the nidityasana, the actual practice. By by putting it into practice, we gain more and more clarity from within. And with that clarity that we gain from going within, we are able to understand what we read more and more deeply. We see, we are able to see fresh layers of meaning, fresh depth of meaning in what Bhagavan is saying. Um, so I say that as a general introduction, because most of the questions but are asked about the practice, are asked because people are not understanding, they, they don't have a clear understanding of what Bhagavan is teaching. So the question, um, the, the set of questions that I'm going to uh, answer today, it was a comment that was written on my blog about uh, 10 days or so ago. Actually, it was written on the, on the video of our previous meeting. Um, what this person wrote was, I still find self-inquiry difficult to apply because I'm not sure whether my attention is on the self. Here, the, the, this sentence itself um, illustrates what I've been trying to say. What is meant by having our attention on the self? Well, firstly, what is meant by the term the self? Actually, the term the self, particularly with the cap when it's put with a capital S, is a rather misleading term because when we put a definite article, we seem to be referring to something. There is no such thing as the self other than ourself. What we need to attend to is not something called the self, it is just to ourself. So in order to in order to understand what it means to attend to ourselves we first need to understand what we actually are now we we seem to be a person we seem to be a body and and in the context of bhagavan's teaching then bhagavan talks about our identification with the body he's not talking just about our identification with the physical form of the body as he says the body is a form of five sheaves. Those five sheaves are the physical form of the body, the life that animates it, 
that is what is called the prana, um, which is manifested in the form of breathing and heartbeat and all the all the uh, uh, physiological processes going on in the body. Uh, that is the life, the mind. In this context, in the context of the five sheaths, the term mind means the grosser functions of the mind, the um, perception, memory, thinking, feeling, emotions, and so on. The, the, these grosser functions of the mind are what's called mind. In addition to the mind, there's some, a, subtler, a subtler aspect of the mind, which is called the intellect. That is what is called the buddhi or vijnana maya kosha. That is the, the, the reasoning, judging, discriminating um, uh, aspect, of the understanding aspect of the mind. Uh, and subtler than that is what is called the chittam or will, which is also called the, uh, the anandamaya kosha, the sheaf composed of happiness, because all our will is driven towards happiness. That is, it, it is, it is uh, our liking to be happy, but drives all, but it would, um, the driving force behind our will. <clears throat> and it is also called the karana sarira, the causal body, because that, the, the, the will consists of, in its subtlest form, it consists of vasanas. Vasanas are the inclinations, but rise in the form of likes, dislikes, desires, attachments, hopes, fears, and so on. So these vasanas are the, our will in its seed form. Um, so all these together, these these five uh, these five aspects of the person that we seem to be—that is, the body, the life, the mind, the intellect, and the will—these are what Bhagavan collectively refers to as the body. And we, though though we are able to distinguish each of these elements from the other elements, we experience them collectively as ourself. That is, we, we, we say, I am sitting or walking. That's referring to the body. I am breathing. I am living. That's referring to the prana. I am thinking. I am feeling. Uh, I'm remembering. I'm seeing. I'm hearing. I'm touching. I'm tasting. This is all referring to the, the mind. Uh, I, I am... Uh, I am judging, I'm discriminating, I'm understanding, I'm not understanding. This is referring to the intellect. I like this, I don't like that. This is referring to the will. But all of these we identify collectively as ourself. But none of these are ourself, because these, these five sheaths appear in waking and dream. They disappear in sleep. But though they disappear in sleep, we continue to be aware of our own existence as I am. So what we actually are is not any of these adjuncts. These are things that come and go. So they're adjuncts. They're what are called in Sanskrit upadis. They're things that are, that are superimposed upon our being, but they are not what we actually are. So what we actually are is just that fundamental awareness, I am. So... Putting our attention on ourself means putting our attention on our own being, on I am, on that fundamental awareness of our own existence that we all experience as I am. Uh, so um, this is as, as far as words can go. But to understand what these words mean, 
we need to obviously think about it and also not merely think about it. We also need to try to put it into practice. That is how we can attend to our being. It, it, we can find out only by trying to do so. It's, it's a bit like riding a bicycle, of course. Riding a bicycle is some, a very gross action. This is something very subtle, but it's like riding a bicycle in the sense that when if we want to learn to ride a bicycle, you can read any number of books about how to ride a bicycle, but you cannot learn to ride a bicycle without actually getting on a bicycle, wobbling and falling, wobbling and falling, until finally you get the hang of it. It's exactly the same with this practice. The more we practice it, the clearer it becomes. Um, so in order to understand what Bhagavan means by putting our attention on ourself or fixing our mind on ourself, we need to understand what he means by ourself. And if, by trial and error, we need to learn, we need to, we need to discover, we need to investigate. This is why the part it's called the path of Apmavichara, means self-investigation. We're this is more than just a meditation. We're investigating ourselves. We are trying to see what we actually are. And we can only see what we actually are by attending to ourselves. Um, and then the person goes on to say, question of clarification. When thoughts stop, usually briefly, is that silence or I am? Again, this question, it shows a, a lack of understanding. That is, whether thoughts are active or whether they have subsided to some extent. In other words, whether thoughts exist or don't exist. But one thing that we are always aware of is our own being, I am. So if we, if we say, yes, when thoughts stop, that silence is I am, that is potentially misleading because it implies that I am refers to our existence. Do we exist only when thoughts stop? No. Do, who is aware of the, when thoughts are uh, passing through our mind, who is aware of these thoughts? I am. So our existence is there, whether thoughts are present or absent. Of course, the more our attention is fixed on our, on I am, on our own being, the more it's thereby withdrawn from other things. So thoughts will subside to the extent to which we are self-attentive. But whether we whether thoughts are there or not, our being is ever-present. So we don't have to wait for thoughts to subside to be aware I am. Even now I am talking. The very fact I say I am talking, I couldn't, I couldn't be aware that I am talking without being aware that I am. So my existence is the one thing that is obvious. Thinking, talking, breathing, liking, disliking, um, seeing, hearing, tasting, these are all secondary things. What is primary? What is the what is our primary and constant experience? It is I am. In waking and dream, we're aware of so many other things. But even when we're aware of other things, we don't cease to be aware I am. In way in sleep, we cease to be aware of anything other than our our own existence. But we are still aware of our existence. We're still aware of I am. So I am is our fundamental awareness, our fundamental experience, the one thing that is constant. When, 
when our attention is going outwards, we may overlook I am, but we never cease to be aware I am. It's just like if you if we go to a cinema and um, we, we sit there for three hours watching a film, because we are so interested in the film, we may completely overlook the fact, but actually we've been sitting there for three hours looking at a screen. It may seem to us, no, I wasn't aware of the screen at all. I was aware only of the pictures. But we were actually always aware of the screen because the screen was the basis on which those pictures were projected. Likewise, the screen on which all experience is projected is our fundamental awareness, I am. So without being aware I am, we could not be aware of anything. Because who is aware of, of this or of that? I am. So that 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 is the the background so i am is is our own existence our own being it is our fundamental awareness so it's the one thing that is constant so it it is not necessary to stop thoughts to be aware i am but to the extent to which we are attentively aware i am in other words to the extent to which we direct our attention back towards uh, uh, this fundamental awareness of our own existence, I am, to that extent, thoughts will subside. Um, so uh, the, the subsidence of thought is a byproduct of this self-investigation. But merely stopping thought is not self-investigation, because every night when we fall asleep, we stop thinking. But do we thereby annihilate ego? No. In order to annihilate ego, we need to be clearly aware of ourselves as we actually are. And to be aware of ourselves as we actually are, we need to attend to ourselves. That means to attend to our being, to our existence, our fundamental awareness, I am. Um, and then the next question is, secondly, when you ask, who am I, is it just a way of bringing us back to that silence in which thoughts arise from? Um, firstly, it is not actually necessary to ask, who am I? Bhagavan never said, ask, who am I? What Bhagavan said is, investigate, who am I? Investigate, who am I, doesn't mean asking a question. It means looking at ourselves, attending to ourselves to see what we actually are. If we find it, if we find that asking the question, who am I, reminds us or helps us to turn our attention back towards ourselves. There's obviously no wrong in asking the question, who am I? But the question, who am I, is not the self-investigation. Self-investigation is investigating who am I. In other words, investigating what this I actually is. Well, what is our being? Who am I? Um, uh, but yes, if, if at all we like to ask questions such as, to whom are these thoughts, who am I? Bhagavan didn't recommend asking these questions. He said we should investigate to whom are these thoughts. We should investigate who am I. That means we should turn our attention back towards ourselves. But if, if we like to ask these questions, we find it helpful. Yes, they, these questions are helpful to the extent to which they help us to bring our attention back to ourselves. And um, our soul, that is our being, is silence. It is the silence, uh, as this person implies, it is the silence from which thoughts arise and into which thoughts subside. It is the silence from which we as ego 
rise and into which we subside. Uh, so that silence is not just vocal silence. It's not just when, when Bhagavan talks about silence, he's not talking about vocal silence, silence of speech. He's not even talking about mental silence. He's talking about the silence that is our own being. Because the nature of being is not doing it. Is, it is it is it is just being in that state of just being, that is the state of silence. Doing, whether doing by mind, speech, or body, thinking, um, talking, uh, uh, or doing any physical action, all these are um, metaphorically speaking noise. But when but but underlying all this noise, the, the background of against which all noise appears and disappears is the ever-present silence. So this the silence that Bhagavan talks about is the silence that exists even when thoughts uh, may be raging through the mind, the background against which they are appearing is the silence that is our own being. Um, so our aim is to draw our attention back to that silence that is our own being, that silence that ever shines in our heart as I am. And if asking questions is helpful to us, okay, we can ask questions. There's no wrong in doing so. But we shouldn't think that merely asking the question is the self-investigation. It is, it's a prompt, we can say, to remind us to turn our attention back towards ourselves. Um, and then they go on to ask, because if you ask, am I aware, that can for a short time stop the mind and bring us back to that silence as well. Yes, that is, uh, if we, asking am I aware is a reminder to us that we are actually always aware. But when we talk about awareness, we, we need to be very careful. The awareness Bhagavan asks us to attend to is the fundamental awareness I am. Yes, we are aware of so many things, but our awareness of things is uh, uh, awareness of things is thought. Underlying that thought is the fundamental awareness I am. That is the awareness we need to hold on to. Um, so we are aware whether other things appear or not. So it's not the awareness of other things that we are investigating. It's the fundamental awareness that shines whether other things appear or disappear, whether other things, whether we are aware of other things or not. The one thing we are always aware is I am. Even say aware of I am is not quite correct because that makes it sound like I am is an object. Obviously, I am can never be an object. It's our own being. So that can never be an object known by us. Um, so the, the self we're investigating, the I am we're investigating, is not an object, it's our own being. Uh, so even to say the self or the I am is a bit misleading because it, it, it reifies it. Um, whereas it's something, if we, uh, reifies it means it sort of, uh, in a subtle way, objectifies it, makes it into a thing. But it's not a thing, it's the underlying reality of, of that is all objects are things. All objects are known by the subject. The, the I am is not even the subject, it's the reality underlying the subject, because the subject is ego. The sub ego is that which is aware of itself as I am this body, I am this person. 
But what is real in that um, uh, adjunct mixed awareness, I am this body, is only the fundamental awareness I am. That is the awareness we need to investigate. Um, um, and then the next question is, is this silence of no mind the I am that we hold our attention on? Uh, yes, that is obviously when there's in, when the mind has subsided, what remains, the silence that remains, that is our own being. Uh, but we don't have to we don't have to, to quieten the mind in order to hold on to our hold our attention on I am. That is where we are the one thing we are always aware of is I am. So let the mind be active or inactive. We 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 need not be concerned about thoughts in the Sixth paragraph of Nana, Bhagavan says, That means, however many thoughts arise, so what? Why does he say that? Because we, we should not, if we are concerned about trying to stop thoughts, then our attention are on the thoughts, not on ourselves. So we let thoughts appear or disappear. It's no concern of ours. To whom do they appear? They appear to me, so let me attend to myself. That should be the, the resolution with which we approach this investigation. So we are least concerned about thoughts. We're least concerned about perceptions, sounds, sights, um, tastes, smells. All these are objects. All these are phenomena. To whom do all these things appear? They appear to me. So who am I? We turn our attention back. That doesn't mean we have to question like that. But that when Bhagavan expressed things in this way, in order to draw our attention back to ourself, that is whatever appears, to whom does it appear? It appears only to me. So who is this me? Who am I? That is what we are trying to investigate. So we have to withdraw our attention from thoughts, feelings, everything. We withdraw our attention from everything in order to fix it on ourselves. Oh, oh by, by fixing our attention on ourselves, we withdraw it from our, everything else, because that's a better way of putting it. Because if we're simply trying to withdraw our attention from other things, that doesn't guarantee that our attention is on ourselves. If we withdraw our attention from all other things, the mind will subside in a state of layer, like sleep. As we every night when we fall asleep, how do we fall asleep? We withdraw our attention from everything else, we stop thinking, and thereby we subside in sleep. But we don't attend to ourselves, so that's only a temporary subsidence, therefore we rise again. So in order to subside in such a way that we never rise again, it's not sufficient merely to withdraw our attention from other things. We need to attend to ourselves. Bhagavan expresses it very beautifully in verse 16 of Upadeshundia. There he says, that means um, uh, leaving uh, external phenomena. Manam tan oli uru ordele undipara unme unichiam undipara. What that means is the mind knowing its own form of light alone is real awareness. The mind knowing its own form of light means that fundamental light of awareness, I am. The, the first clause, uh, leaving external phenomena, that is an adverbial clause. The main point is, 
that the subject of a sentence is the mind knowing its own form of light. The mind knowing its own form of light means being self-attentive. So attending to ourselves so keenly, but we thereby withdraw our attention from everything else, that alone is real knowledge, real awareness. If we merely withdraw our attention from everything else, we subside in a temporary state of dissolution, like sleep. But that is not our aim. So our concern in Atmavichara should not be to withdraw our attention from other things. Our concern should be to attend to ourselves. If we attend to ourselves, to the extent to which we attend to ourselves, we are thereby withdrawing our attention from everything else. And then the person goes on to say, also, do we need to actually ask any questions? No, as I said, it's not necessary to ask any questions. Bhagavan didn't actually say, question, who am I? He said, investigate, who am I? If, if Bhagavan gives us a book and says, investigate what's written in it, he's not asking us just to sit there and ask, what's written in this book, what's written in this book? No. What, what does it mean to investigate what is written in a book? We have to open the book and read what's written in it. That is investigating. So it's not a matter of asking questions, it's a matter of investigating. Um, when we become aware of thinking or doing, can we not just take our attention away from those thoughts and the idea, I am doing this and that, and turn our attention back or inwards? Yes. But the we, we shouldn't even try to take our attention away from other things. We should simply try to turn our attention back towards ourselves. Because to the extent to which we attend to ourselves, we are thereby automatically withdrawing our attention from other things. Um, so if you consciously try to ignore something, if you consciously try to ignore thoughts or, or, or any phenomena, the, your very attempt to ignore that, your attention is on that thing. So the effective way to withdraw our attention from other things is to attend to ourselves. And that's all that is necessary. All that is necessary is to fix our attention on ourselves. Bhagavan, in the 16th paragraph of Nana, he gives a very clear and simple uh, definition of what is self-investigation. He says, Sada Kalamum Manate that means the name Atmavichara, or self-investigation, refers only to always keeping the mind on oneself. What's it mean to keep one's mind on oneself? If you put your mind on something, that means you're attending to it. So when he said keeping the mind on oneself, uh, uh, what he means by keeping the mind on oneself is um, is keeping our attention on ourselves. In other words, being self-attentive, attending merely to our own being, I am, that alone is self-investigation. To the extent to which we attend to our being, our attention is thereby automatically withdrawn from other things. So we don't have to bother about withdrawing our attention from other things. All we have to bother about is attending to our own being. Or in terms the ter terms in which Bhagavan expresses it in verse 16 of Upadeshundia, by the mind knowing its own form of light. That means by the mind, the word he uses there for knowing is orderly. Orderly means both investigating and knowing. So we can also interpret that as the mind investigating its form of light. So to the extent to which we 
investigate or know our form of light. In other words, to the extent to which we attend to ourselves and thereby remain aware of ourself alone, to that extent our attention is automatically withdrawn from the the belly videangal, the external vishayas or phenomena. So we don't have to we we do have to make we we need not make any effort to withdraw our attention from other things. All we need to do is to focus our attention on ourselves. To the extent to which we do so, automatically our attention will, will be withdrawn from other things. And then the person goes on to uh, say, as sometimes it feels to me when I am engrossed in thinking or doing, an awareness comes in naturally, and I become aware that there are thoughts, almost like a light switch turning on. Um, and when that happens, I can then turn my attention inwards without asking the question, who am I? Yes, but the, uh, the awareness we need to attend to is just the fundamental awareness I am. We are not to be a, we are not trying to be aware of thoughts or anything else. The awareness of thoughts or of phenomena of any kind is an outward turning of the mind. When the mind turns inwards, we are turning our attention back towards the fundamental awareness, I am alone, not to anything else. And then the person goes on to ask, finally, when you say self-inquiry is investigating, not just asking a question, that implies to me I need to be doing something. No. Investigating anything other than ourselves is a doing because our attention, if you want to investigate um, what's written in a book, for example, our attention has to go out away from ourselves towards whatever the words in the book are. So our attention is moving away from ourselves towards other things. But when we're investigating ourselves, our attention is not actually moving anywhere, it is subsiding back into its source. So we're investigating or attending to anything other than ourself is, is a mental activity, whereas attending to ourself is a subsidence of activity. We subside back in, by attending to our being, we subside back into our being and remain as our being. Um, so it is not doing anything. It is a cessation of doing anything. That is, in attending to ourselves, we are withdrawing our attention from other things. The nature of ego or mind is to rise, stand, and flourish by attending to things other than itself, as Bhagavan implies in verse 25 of Uludhanapti, where he says, grasping form, it comes into existence. Grasping form, it stands. Grasping and feeding on form, it flourishes abundantly. Their form means anything other than ourself, because the ego is a formless phantom, he says in the same verse. So forms are all, it, it, form there means any phenomena, whether physical phenomena, mental phenomena, so any, any sight, sound, touch, uh, tactile sensation, any thought, any feeling, any emotion, any like, dislike, they're all, um, all uh, um, objects. We're trying to withdraw our attention. I mean, we're trying to attend only to ourselves, to our own being. So to the extent to which we attend to our being, we thereby subside back into our being. To the extent to which we attend to other things, we rise and go outwards. Um, then they ask, can you clarify what investigating actually means? Well, in this case, how come... To, 
to investigate something outside ourselves. Supposing you're an astronomer and you want to investigate about uh, distant planets or uh, galaxies or whatever, you need all sorts of instruments. You need uh, all types of sophisticated uh, uh, telescopes and so on. Um, or the basic instrument you need to know anything physical, you need your five senses. To know anything mental, you need the mind. But to know ourselves, we don't need anything other than attention. So we can investigate ourselves. Investigating ourselves means attending to ourselves. As Bhagavan says, what the, what the name Atma Vichara or self investigation refers to is uh, keeping our mind or attention on ourselves. So always keeping our attention on ourselves. That is what Bhagavan means by investigating ourselves. Um, in other words, observation or attention is the basic tool of any investigation. Um, that is, scientists, we, without attention, without observation, they cannot investigate anything. They may need so many other instruments. They may need telescopes, microscopes, all sorts of, uh, of tools they may need to investigate things other than themselves. But the basic tool of any investigation is attention or observation. So we investigate ourselves just by being self-attentive. And being self-attentive is not a doing, it's a state of just being. Um, because if we turn up, the person goes on to, uh, to say, because if we turn our attention inwards and we don't allow it to be distracted by any thoughts, feelings, emotions, sensations, then usually things settle down exactly, precisely to the extent to which our attention is directed inward. Everything sub that, that is ego subsides to the extent to which it attends to its own being. And when ego subsides, everything else subsides along with it, because everything else appears only in the view of ego. So when ego subsides, everything subsides. As Bhagavan says in the final paragraph of uh, Nana, he begins by saying, if oneself rises, everything rises. If oneself subsides, everything subsides. In that context, oneself means ego. So when we rise as ego, everything appears. When ego subsides, everything subsides. Um, so, so being self-attentive is a is is not. It's a subsidence or cessation of activity. It's, it's a settling down, sinking. That's why Bhagavan often used the word sinking, sinking within. It's usually it's often translated in English books as diving within, but I think a more apt translation is sinking within. That is, to the extent to which we we attend to our being, we thereby sink down or settle down into our being and remain as our being. That's how Bhagavan often expressed the practice of self-investigation as summa iru. That means just be. So what does just being mean? We, how can we just be? Only by attending to our being, we will thereby subside or settle down into our being and remain as just being. And thought, and then the person ends by saying, thoughts subside or become less. And uh, what there is is silence, peace. What you, uh, uh, what are you investigating? That is the silence or peace. 
that silence or peace is not something other than ourselves. That when everything else subsides, the silence or peace that remains, that is our own real nature. That is our being. So that is what we're investigating. So how can we investigate our being? Only by being as we actually are. And to be as we actually are, we need to attend to our being and thereby subside into it. So, as I say, all these things, all these sort of questions, they, that is, if, if things are not clear to us, there's no harm in asking others who may be able to, who may have a better understanding than ourselves. But ultimately, we all need to ask these questions to ourselves, to try to understand these things ourselves. That is all the pointers required are given to us by Bhagavan in his own original writings. But we've got to grasp what he means. And for that, we need to read what he says very carefully and to think about it very deeply. And most importantly of all, to put it into practice. To the extent to which we put it into practice, to that extent, his words will become clear. If you've never visited a country and you're given a map, you can study that map and you'll get some vague idea about mountains here, there's forest here, there's a city here, there's a river there, there are roads here, there. We get, a, we get a general idea by reading the map. But that map won't be so meaningful to us until we actually go to that country. When we go to that country, taking the map with us, the map will become more and more meaningful. Oh, this, what is indicated here, that is this mountain, that is this forest, that is this road. This, so we, we get a far clearer picture of that country by actually visiting it. Then the map becomes more meaningful to us than it was to us before we ever visited that country. So Bhagavan's teachings are like the map. By, we need to study and understand the map in order to explore this country the country of our own heart, our own being. Um, but the more we, we explore this country of our own being, the more meaningful the map becomes to us. Of course, in a, if it's a physical map about a physical location, there are so many features there. What we are investigating is our own being. In our own being, there are no features. They're just pure being. But what what pure being actually is becomes clearer and clearer to us the more we 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 attend to our being and thereby subside into it. So I hope this uh, adequately answers those questions, and I hope even for others who didn't ask these questions, I hope this is a helpful clarification. So if, does anyone have any questions they would like to ask about this? or indeed about yes, any please. aspect of Bhagavan's teachings. Uh, there's a question from Elena. Yes. Elena? Yes, thank you. Uh, hello, Michael. Uh, unfortunately, uh, it is not a question about self-investigation. Now, uh, I just uh, wanted for a long time over to, uh, to ask you this question. Uh, to me, I mean, it sounded interesting. Uh, it is about uh, second uh, Mangalam verse of Muruganar uh, for uh, Uladunar Padu, where, uh, where it is said that uh, very pure uh, souls, they fear death at the moment of death, 
and uh, you then on your website uh, on your blog you explain it like uh, you say that um, it uh, this moment has has not to be taken lightly that it has some like deep meaning uh, I just wanted to know uh, why is it like this sorry that wasn't quite clear to me you're are you referring to the second Mangalam verse of Uludhanapadu yes yes that that is not by Murugana. The Mangalam verses are by Bhagavan. Murugana oh. wrote the Payaram, which is the introductory verses. For oh, Uludhanapadu, he wrote one, and he wrote a second one for the Kalivemba version, the extended oh. version of Uludhanapadu. So this this um, this second Mangalam verse of Uludhanapadu, this is actually um, well, Bhagavan is we can we can say that verse is actually autobiographical because Bhagavan is describing exactly what happened to him. Um, that is, this is a very, very interesting uh, verse. What he says in this verse is um, uh, but the, the, the meaning of the verse is uh, pure-hearted people who have intense fear of death will take refuge at the feet of God who is devoid of death and birth as a fortress. What Bhagavan means here by God, Mahesan, Mahesan is a name of Shiva. Uh, Mahesan literally means Maha, Isan. Isan means God or the ruler, and Maha means great. So the great ruler is, is Maheshwara, God or, or Shiva. Um, taking refuge at his feet, that is, oh, Bhagavan describes him as Marana Baba Mila Mahesan. That is, Mahesan who is devoid of death and birth. What does it mean to be devoid of death and birth? Um, the, uh, that, what is it that is devoid of death and birth? That is, every all phenomena appear and disappear. So that which is devoid of Death and birth is the pure being, in other words, our own being. So the feet of Mahesan means the implication is our own being. So this is exactly what happened to Bhagavan. He uses the word here, he says, Am Makal. Uh, makal means people. Am means um, it can be interpreted in two ways. The normal way most people will take it is that it's a uh, um, it, it means uh, those people. Uh, it can mean it, it can be a um, uh, um, it, it can mean those. But in this context, Amma has a different meaning. Um, actually, it also means beautiful. So, what is the beauty he's talking about here? The purity of heart. That is why I translated Am uh, Ammakal. Uh, beautiful people as pure-hearted people, but well, that's the implication. So, when the mind, when the heart is pure, then only will we. That is, the fear of death comes to all of us at times. Um, if we are confronted by any dangerous situation, we we feel a fear of death because so long as we take the body to be ourselves, we will naturally fear the death of the body. So when we are when we are confronted by danger. Or suddenly we um, uh, we may uh, be told that we've got terminal cancer or something. An intense fear of death may come to us. Um, 
but what generally happens in the mind of an immature, an, an impure, a mind that is impure, is the, when we fear death, we fear, what do we fear? We fear to be separated from this body and thereby separate with everything associated with this body. So most people, when the fear of death comes, they think about their um, everything that they hold dear, their loved ones, their uh, property, their, um, their all, all the things that they they, uh, they identify with, um, their social status, their all these things. Their mind, in other words, goes out and tries to hold on to the things that they fear to lose. But in the case of a pure-hearted person like as like that young boy Venkaraman, when that fear of death came to him, the only thing he feared to lose was his own existence. So he investigated his own existence, his own being. When this body dies, will I also die? That he didn't he didn't think of it in those terms, but in effect, that's what happened. He, that's how he described it later. That when that fear of death came to him, he wanted to see but with the what is going to die, the, obviously this body is going to die. If not now, one day it's going to die. We all know that. But with the death of this body, will I also die? So he so in order to find out whether I will die when the body dies, he turned his attention within to investigate this I. And that is what he refers to here as taking refuge in the feet of Mahesan, who is devoid of birth and death. That is that what is what is devoid of birth and death is only our own being, our own reality. And that is the refuge. But that is the fortress in which we must take refuge. Only by taking refuge in that fortress will we overcome death. And then he says in the next sentence, by their refuge, which in this context implies by surrendering, by, by subsiding back into their own being, by surrendering to Mahesan, they undergo death. So by, by, by turning our attention back within and uh, clinging to the feet of Mahesam that are always shining in our heart as I, we will thereby die. By taking refuge in him, we die. And when we die, we become deathless. That, that is because when the body dies, we don't become deathless because so long as the ego survives, if, when one body dies, ego will project another body. And it'll go on and on, dreaming one body, one life after another, so long as ego survives. But when when we take refuge in the feet of Mahesan, ego thereby subsides and merges back into its source, into its own being. That is the true death. But Bhagavan refers to when he said they undergo death. So having died, having when ego has died, we then become deathless. And so he ends by saying, "Will those who are deathless?" be associated with the thought of death. That is, the thought of death will never come to us once we are truly dead, once his ego is dead. Yes, uh, thank you. Uh, actually, this question uh, just somehow uh, appeared when I read uh, this Mangalam verse, because we, um, I think, uh, I used to think that uh, uh, holy people or people that already we understand that they, 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 their thoughts are uh, always like directed to God, uh, they don't fear death at all. 
and uh, it like it, it was like some contradiction uh, between what uh, uh, Kahavan said uh, that pure-hearted people they have intense fear of death. Yes. And uh, on the other hand, we know that sages they uh, like you said, I mean that they just we understand that they uh, have surrendered surrendered uh, themselves uh, to God completely. So there, there is no such question as fear of death uh, exists at all. That so, is exactly what Bhagavan is saying in the last two sentences. By their refuge, they undergo death. Will those who are deathless be associated with the thought of death? So if we have truly surrendered ourselves completely, we will thereby die. And thereby we'll never get the fear of death or thought of death again. But so long as we are, we, we, we are still aware of ourselves as I am this body, our surrender is not yet complete. So the fear of death will come to us. And if we are truly mature, as in the case of that young boy Venkaraman, that fear of death was a great blessing because that is the, was the final trigger that turned his attention back within and enabled him to cling so firmly to the feet of God, in other words, to his own being, that he merged and died in that. Uh, so, uh, even though he was uh, quite mature already, yes, 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 he had, he had because I mean he had this fear of death. Because as I understand now, maybe I mean I, I can understand it like uh, he, uh, it came to him spontaneously. He was not like uh, ready. I mean he 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 was not doing. Mm, consciously uh, no no it, it came completely spontaneously yes it, so came, it was grace grace appeared grace rose from his heart in the form of that fear of death in order to pull him back within and yes, so, so, absorb I mean him that, into itself i mean that uh, uh, even though he was such a pure-hearted being anyway yes, I mean, yes. I mean, anyway, he 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 experienced this fear. Yes, yes. And he, um, said, he said, uh, "Am makal." Makal means people. It means uh, so. We we still the implication is it we we still identify ourselves as I am this person, but to very great extent, pure-hearted means. But the what are the impurities in our heart? They're all the the bastanas, the likes, dislikes, desires, attachments, and so on. So those who are pure, the bhasanas the, the are, are, are reduced to a considerable extent. But we, because we haven't yet surrendered completely, we, 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 are not, we haven't yet conquered death. But when we, when, so that, that, this is talking about the final stages of spiritual sadhana. Yes, it looks like this, of course. Yes, and, yes. Uh, uh, but I just remember these cases with uh, closest Bhagavan's uh, uh, devotees um, in the ashram uh, at his days, uh, and uh, all of them. I mean, not all. I mean, some of them. Uh, I don't know. Maybe you know much, of course, about Sadhu Om. I mean, that they were like ready to. I mean, they were. That can be known. Who is ready can be known only to Bhagavan. We cannot know how ready we are. So how can we know about others? And why should we know about others? We come to Bhagavan for our own salvation. So 
just because people were in Bhagavan's physical presence doesn't necessarily mean they were ready. There were, there, was, there were some who were ready, they would have got what they came for, and their story was over. Um, but there are others who are, um, uh, who are less mature. So it's, we, but who can tell about the state of others? We don't even know our own reality. How can we know about this, the, the, the state of others? Yes, it just uh, to me it just uh, sounded like a little, little bit like contradiction. I mean that uh, Pahaman was uh, a pure-hearted being already, but for example, uh, but um, but he feared. Uh, or also uh, we know this example of Tinnai Swami, for example, who uh, I mean that I, I think it was like uh, no fear. <laughs> I think maybe because of it, that he but was in the case of Tinnai Swami, Bhagavan just said one word. And he said it in a different context. That is, Tine Swami, he had resigned his job in, in the Madras Medical College, and a similar post was becoming available in Pondicherry. And so he, he went to take leave of Bhagavan, saying he was going to apply for that job. And usually, if people say to Bhagavan that they're going to leave, Bhagavan will just nod his head, and they take that as Bhagavan's consent or blessing, and they leave. But in, unusually, in the case of uh, Tine Swami, when he, when he went to take leave of Bhagavan, Bhagavan simply said, Iru. Iru means be. It also, in a, in a normal sense, it means wait. So most of the people there probably most people didn't even notice it. If anyone had noticed it, they'd have thought, oh, this is a bit unusual. Bhagavan is asking him to wait. There may be some reason for that, and wouldn't have thought about it more. But there was only one other person there who understood what really happened, and that was Murugana. Murugana saw what happened, and he understood. But Bhagavan wasn't merely saying wait. He was saying that was a very deep Upadesha, just be the implication. And Murugana also understood the effect that had on Tine Swami. So it was Murugana who told this uh, later to Sadhu Om. That's how we came to know about this. Okay. Uh, thank you very much, Michael. Uh, I think I understood more about this. Yes. Okay. Okay. It's 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 not a simple question. I mean that it is like um, uh, one of those questions that cannot be even explained. I mean perfectly. Maybe one hundred percent. Yes. Yeah. But but the important thing is that is what Murugana in the first Pyram verse in the, the introductory verse written by Murugana, what he says the context in which Bhagavan wrote this Uludunaptu, what he says is. Um, what he asked Bhagavan is, Mayin ilbum adumevum tiranum, weumbadi emaku oduha. That means, um, uh, um, so that we may be saved, reveal to us the nature of reality and the means of attaining it. So, this is the subject matter of Uludunapadu. So, what Bhagavan is talking about in all the verses of Uludhanapati, he's pointing towards the nature of reality and the means of attaining it. So this verse is about the means of attaining that. So this is about spiritual practice. Yes, exactly. Yes, yes, of course. Of course, we, we have to take it like this. It's yes, yeah. yes. 
Thank you very much, Michael. Right, right, right. Um, the next question is from Mate. Hi, hello everyone. Thank you. Hello, Michael. Namaskaram. Namaskaram. Hi. Um, I have a question about Pramana because I read in Gurbhashakta uh, I think Bhagavan said that even a little bit of Pramana can cause great evil, and yes. that, of course, we can see that. Like it's a slip, very slippery slope with Pramana. First, you're, you're attending to yourself, then. Uh, you start attending to some object, and before you know it, you jump from one object to another, and uh, yes. there you go. Um, at the same time, and of course, as it says, as you said, uh, that it is written in the scriptures, Pramada is death. Yes. Um, but at the same time, I, I remember reading in Sadhana Isaram, I, I think you also said that. Um, naturally, when we are attending to ourselves, the intensity of self-attention will decrease after yeah. some point. And I think Sadwam said that it is better to, um, to I mean, stop the self-attention and start, start attending something else and then come back with a fresh, uh, fresh love as it is yes. to, yes. And yes, I was trying to, in a way, reconcile these two things because I think, of course, when you stop attending to yourself, then as, as I said, it's a very slippery slope. So, yes, yes. And, I think you said about this that the solution would be when you stop attending to ourselves to put the attention on Bhagavan's teachings. But um, the issue I, I have with that is uh, Pramada comes because uh, of our lack of love to attend to ourselves. Is that right? Yes. yes. So because of that lack of, and also the intensity of self attention uh, uh, drops because of our lack of love to attend yes, to ourselves. Yes. So I think that same lack of love is also causing me to not want to bring my attention to Bhagavan's teachings as a solution <laughs> to uh, Pravada. So right. I was thinking, how should we yeah, reconcile these two things? And, and even if you bring your attention to Bhagavan's teachings and that encourages you again to, to turn within, it's still, sometimes it feels that, okay, I'm reading Bhagavan's teachings, but because I still don't have that love to turn within, I'm just thinking about it conceptually and all that, which of course it helps, but yeah. 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 So, okay. yeah. yeah. Um, just for those who are not familiar with the term, pramade is a Sanskrit term that means negligence or inattentiveness. In the context of um, Advaita, uh, pramada means uh, self-negligence or non-self-attentiveness. In other words, the opposite of self-attentiveness. Um, so when, when we are trying to attend to ourselves under the influence of, um, of, uh, of pramada, of our, when, we, when, we, when our self-attentiveness slackens, then one of two things happens. Either our attention goes out towards other things, that leads to a rising of thoughts, or we subside in sleep, or a sleep-like state. So we have to, in order to hold on to self-attentiveness, well, by holding on to self-attentiveness, we are remaining balanced between these two states, between thoughts on the one hand, and uh, uh, sleep on the other hand. So. We, we need to try it, to hold on to that self-attentiveness as much as possible. But due to 
due to a lack of love, because we don't have this, in order to hold on to self-attentiveness uninterruptedly, we obviously need to have great love to do so. And most of us are lacking that love. So uh, we try to hold on to self-attentiveness as much as possible, but our attention becomes slacker and slacker. What Sadhuam said is, rather than trying again and again to hold on to it when we are, when, when we, when that we lose that strength, it's better sometimes just to take a break, give it a rest. And Oof. the best thing, of course, when during that rest is then to uh, think of Bhagavan's teaching, because that again gives us the enthusiasm to try and attend to ourselves. But this, the question you're asking, this is the question, in order to attend to ourselves, we need to have love. And in order to cultivate that love, we need to attend to ourselves. So it's a bit like a which is the which is the chicken and which is the egg, which comes first. But but the fact is, we we all the very fact that we are here discussing this subject means we've already got some curiosity, some interest in this subject. So that's the beginning of the love. Let us make use of whatever little love we have. Let us try to make use of that by attending to ourselves. The more we attend to ourselves, the more that love will grow. So, but we obviously we need to be very patient in this path because we come to this path with so many vasanas, as Bhagavan says, from Tondu Tottu Varu Kindra Vishaya Vasana. That these Vishaya Vasanas come from time immemorial. We've cultivated these Vasanas over the course of countless numbers of lives. So we are now trying to undo the mess that we've created for ourselves over the course of thousands of lives. So this isn't going to happen overnight. We need to be patient. Of course, if we are already very mature, then it will happen in a flash. But mo when we are starting on this path, we are not so mature. Uh, we, we don't know how mature we are or how, how pure we are. So we, 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 if you're traveling on a, a journey, you can only start from wherever you're, sta you're currently standing. So it doesn't matter how far our destination may be, so long as we know the right direction in which to travel, all we have to do is to travel in that direction. If we travel in that direction, sooner or later we will surely reach our goal. So what is the direction in which we need to travel? It is back within. That Bhagavan is made clear. So we need to try our best to, to, to go in that direction as much as possible. It, it may be a slow and painful process because we because of our lack of love. But the more we try to do it, the more that love will grow. And the more the love grows, the more we will try to do it. Yes, yes, of course. This but... is what Bhagavan refers to as the, the, the prey caught in the jaws of the tiger. Once we've got an interest in this, we really cannot escape from this. <laughs> yes. But as he says, he says, those who, like the prey that is caught in the jaws of a tiger, those who have been caught in the glance of Guru's grace will surely be saved and never forsaken. Eininum Guru Katya Varipadi Tavaradu Nadikavendam. Nevertheless, it is necessary to follow without fail the path shown by Guru, or in a, to follow in accordance with the path shown by Guru. So we need to do our part trying to turn within. Everything else will be done by grace. Even our trying to turn within is being done by grace because it is grace alone that gives us whatever little liking we have to, 
to try to turn within, that liking is given only by grace. Yes, of course. And yeah, I, I was asking this question because sometimes, okay, I take a break from self-attention with the motivation of, okay, I'll start again with a fresh, uh, yeah. fresh intensity, with the motivation of applying Sadwam's advice, and then I find myself completely forgetting about that. Yes, so, well, we we yeah, are yeah. all we are all sadly lacking in love. If yeah. we are honest with yeah. ourselves, none yeah. none of us have sufficient love. If we had sufficient love, the story would be over. We'd turn within and merge back into our soul. So the very fact that we're still here talking about this subject shows how that we don't yet have sufficient love. Yeah, so at, at least even, I mean, even if we don't have to love to even bring our mind to Bhagavad's teachings, I, at the very least, I guess we can we can pray to like show his beauty. As, yes, as exactly, this. exactly. So, that, so, yeah. That's why Bhagavan has given us this Aksharam, right? Because yeah, yeah. that is, Bhagavan said, this spiritual path is a battle fought within our own will, within our own heart, between our on the one hand, our Vishaya Vasanas, our liking to go outwards, and on the other hand, our Sat Vasanas, our liking to go back and to be as we actually are. Yes. Thank so you very much. Th that yeah. battle has to be fought. Yeah, for, for sure. And that Bhagavan is what Bhagavan refers to in Akshramlai as the Aral Poratam, the, the warfare of grace. He says in one verse, Pokum varavumil poduveli in ilaral pora tankataranachala. Show me the warfare of grace fought in the common space where there's no coming and going. That common space in which there's no coming and going is in our own heart. So that warfare of grace it has to. We, how can we see that warfare of grace? Only by turning within. Yes. Thank you. Thanks a lot, Michael. Namoramana. Namoramana. Thank you. And the victor of that warfare of grace is is assured. That is only grace can win, because the the battle is between grace on the one hand and Maya on the other hand. Maya is our own ego or mind, and grace is obviously an infinitely more powerful. Uh, um, that then is infinitely more powerful than our mind or ego. So uh, the success of, of of grace and the failure of ego, uh, the, the, the defeat of ego is absolutely assured. But we have to fight, we have to go through this fight. There's no shortcut. This fight yes. cannot be avoided. This yes. warfare cannot be avoided. Yes, it's becoming quite clear. <laughs> Thank <Yes>. you. <laughs> Thanks a lot. Thanks a lot. Right. Yeah. Um, there's another question. Why is it said that the body is nothing but a thought? Not only is the body just a thought, um, ego, the eye that is aware of itself as I am this body, is itself a thought. That is, what Bhagavan means by thought is um, is any mental phenomena or mental impression. So all perceptions are obviously mental impressions. So they're all thoughts. This body, what do? How do we know this body? We know it. We we can we can see it. We can hear it. We can touch it. We can that, that is it. It is it is an object known by us. All objects 
are just thoughts, they're just mental impressions. Do we actually have a body? Well, I've got the impression I have a body, I've got the impression I am this body. So these are all mental, everything is mental except our own being. So even ego, the eye that is aware of itself as I am this body, the eye that is aware of all these phenomena, they are all, it, that is all phenomena are thoughts, and the ego, ego is that which is aware of itself as I am this body. Since this body is a thought, that, that is that awareness I am this body is a mixture, a conflation of two things. On the one hand, the pure awareness of our own being, I am, and on the other hand, the body, which is a thought. So when these two are conflated, that 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 conflation, that mixture, that chitjada granti, as it's called, the knot, but uh, formed by the entanglement of the pure awareness, chit, and this body, which is jada, which is just a thought, uh, that resulting mixture is a thought. When we remove the adjunct, what remains is the, is the underlying reality, the pure awareness I am. That alone is not a thought. So everything other than our own being, our own fundamental awareness I am, is a thought. That is Bhagavan use when Bhagavan uses the term thought, he's not just people often think of thoughts as just the, the mental chatter that's going on in the mind. According to Bhagavan, any type of mental phenomena or mental impression is a thought. That's what Bhagavan means by thought. So all of this, all our experience as ego, is just a, a collection, a series of mental impressions. And even the eye that is aware of being mental impressions is itself a mental impression. But though this I, this ego, is a thought, it is a thought unlike all other thoughts, because all other thoughts are objects, they, and therefore they are jada, they are devoid of awareness. This body is not aware of its own existence. I am aware of this body, I am aware of this body as I. So what is aware of the body is not the body, but the eye that has identified itself as the body. That's why the body seems to be aware, because we mistake ourselves to be the body, but what is actually aware is only that eye. And that, because that eye is conflated with the, um, with the body, it's not the pure eye. The pure eye is not a thought, but the eye mixed and conflated with this body, that is ego, that is a thought. I hope that's a, a, a clear answer to that question. Just a quick question, Michael. What is the word which Bhagavan uses for thought? Uh, he what uses various words. In Tamil, the, the word he uses most often is ninevu. Nine, uh, nine means to think, it's a verb meaning to think. Nine vu is a noun form from that. Another word he often uses is uh, ennum. Uh, ennu means to think. Ennum is thought. And he also often uses Sanskrit words like um, chintana, sometimes vritti, but generally he uses just the simple Tamil words that mean. Um, but mean thought in much the same sense, but uh, uh, in English we use the word thought. 
So it's Vritti and Chintana as well. Yeah. Um, The next question. um, As the result of self-inquiry, we ask the question, who am I? Then to me, it is unclear what needs to be done after that. Should we just then switch the focus to the subjective feeling, I am? Is this understanding correct? Then repeat this process after every distraction. Um, yes and no, but it needs to be a little bit refined. Firstly, we don't have to ask the question, who am I? Um, no wrong in asking the question, who am I? But asking the question, who am I, is not self-investigation. Self-investigation is turning our attention back towards ourselves. So if, uh, if uh, asking the question helps to remind us to turn our attention towards ourselves, no harm in asking that question, but we shouldn't take the mere questioning to be the self-investigation. Self-investigation is turning our attention and fixing our attention on ourselves. Um, uh, sorry, can you repeat the question? But I, I, yeah. There was something else I wanted to yeah, say. About and it. Uh, there is a follow-up to it as well. Okay, so but if you I'll can, let's together. deal with the first bit first. Yeah. Um, as the result of self-inquiry, we ask the question, who am I? Then to me, it is unclear what needs to be done after that. Should we just then switch the focus to the subjective feeling, I am? Is this understanding correct? And then repeat this process after every distraction. Um, and uh, there is a follow-up question, which is about the same thing. Yeah, but can I answer this? Because there's a sure. lot of things there. But firstly... The asking the question, who am I, is not a result of the self-investigation. It may help to draw us to the self-investigation, but the wording of the question began as a result of self-inquiry, asking the question, who am I? That's putting the cart before the horse. Um, As I say, asking the question, who am I, is not necessary, but it may be helpful. Some people may find it helpful. What we are to do, there's nothing to be done all us what self-investigation is is keeping our attention or our mind fixed on ourselves that as Bhagavan uh, clearly says so all we need to do is to attend to ourselves that means to attend to our own being and you say to attend to the feeling i am this word feeling is a little bit of a it's often used but it's not really such an appropriate term because a feeling is something that is felt. A feeling is implies an object, something that is known. We, we a, a feeling is what is felt. But yes, we we do. We could say in a way we feel our existence. But it's rather than talking about the feeling I am, the awareness I am. We are clearly aware I am. It, a, a feeling tends to suggest something that's rather vague. When we talk, I have a feeling. Um, uh, he may not be a good person. That's a, that we we use feeling when we just to mean a sort of hunch. But uh, I am is not just a feeling. It's we are clearly aware I am, and moreover, I am is our own being. So is our existence a mere feeling? No, obviously it's not. Are you a mere feeling? No. If someone asks you, are you just a feeling? No, obviously we're not. We are that which is aware of all feelings. Feelings come and go. But what is constant is our being. So it's to, to talk of the feeling I am is a little bit um, 
it's a bit it's not a very satisfactory way of expressing it if you want to talk about it, you can say the fundamental awareness i am the one thing that we are always aware of is i am so it's not it's not a mere feeling um and it's not even it it is i <laughs> just that is language will always fail us when we talk about this subject that is i am i am means i exist so it refer, it is but the words i am refer to our existence to our being and our being is something of which we are clearly aware but we clearly know i am we don't just uh, vaguely feel i am the one thing that we know always is i am so uh, keeping our attention fixed on our being is what self-investigation is it's not a doing it is just a state of 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 being attentively we are always self-aware but generally we are negligently self-aware because we're more interested in knowing other things than knowing ourselves uh, self-investigation means being attentively self-aware being attentively aware i am there is never a moment when we're not aware i am but we generally are more interested in other things so we need to be attentively aware i am that is all that is to be done and that is not a doing it is a state of just being and what was the later part of the question yeah the follow-up question is when you use the word investigate ourselves it is confusing do you mean hold on just to the fundamental awareness i am or just be i am though that's one and the same that is how can we be just i am well we are always i am we can never not be i am but the point is we need to just be i am when we attend to anything other than ourselves, we rise as ego the false awareness i am this body so in order to be just i am we need to hold on to i am alone that is to the extent to which we attend to our being we remain as our being so we investigate our being by being as we are and we we can be as we are only by attending to ourselves by attending to our being that is the nature of ego is to rise stand and flourish by attending to anything other than itself but by attending to its own being it thereby subsides and remains as pure being so that is all that is to be done so it's not a doing it is a state of just being that's why Bhagavan often described this practice as summa irupadu, just being. But we cannot just be in any way other than by holding on to our being. To the extent to which we hold on to our being, in other words, to the extent to which we attend to our being, attend to I am, we remain as I am. Uh, the next question is uh, can michael please talk about the ego in relation to being and the five sheaths in the west it is seen as a function of identity some eastern frameworks see it as the root of kashayas of anger pride deceit and greed um there's some truth in all of those things uh ego is the root but ego is the subject everything else is objects so all objects appear in whose view only in the view of the subject 
So in that sense, ego is the root of everything. Without ego, nothing else exists. As Bhagavan says in verse 26 of Uludhanapadu, uh, if, uh, if ego comes into existence, everything comes into existence. If ego doesn't exist, everything doesn't exist. Because everything is just objects or phenomena. Those objects or phenomena appear in whose view? In the view of ego. So ego is ego is a form of awareness, but it's not the pure awareness. The pure awareness is just the awareness of our own being, I am. But ego is that same fundamental awareness mixed and conflated with adjuncts as I am this body. So it's only when we're aware of ourselves as I am this body, and this body means that bundle of five sheaths, only when we're aware of ourselves as I am this body, but we are consequently aware of other things. As Bhagavan says in verse 4 of Uludhanapadu, if oneself is a form, the world and God will be likewise. If oneself is not a form, who can see their forms and how? So it's only when we rise as ego and thereby see ourselves, experience ourselves as a form, the form, the form of five sheaths called body, but we we are consequently aware of other things, so other forms. So in waking and dream, we're aware of so many forms. Because why? Because we're aware of ourselves as I am the form of this body. And in um in in sleep. We are not aware of any forms because we are not aware of ourselves as a form. So it's only by being aware of ourselves as a form that we are consequently aware of other forms. So the two defining characteristics of ego, ego is that I that is aware of itself, firstly, a, firstly aware of itself as a form, and that is consequently aware of other things. So as ego, we are always aware of ourselves as I am this body, and we are consequently aware of other things. In which, when when Bhagavan says ego is the false, is that which is aware of itself as I am this body, what he means by body is all the five sheaths. I I hope that's an adequately clear answer to that question. That's right. Thank you, Michael. Right. Do you have any further questions on that or? Um, a little thing. It's, um, I, I'm involved with a sort of part Jain, part Vaishnav organization, and they talk about six eternal elements. And the interesting correlation with uh, Advaita Vedanta's Chit Jadagranti, uh, uh, yes? They talk about these six eternal elements as being the self. Um, Jada, Paramanus, atoms, yeah. time, space, moving, stopping. Yeah. But like you say, in the presence of Bhagavan, all this world comes about in the mere presence. Likewise, when these, this uh, non-self, uh, Paramanus, Jada, comes into contact, they're theoretical entities. Yeah. Then a third thing arises, which is this Maya. Yeah, it's a really interesting correlation, but it's doing my head in because I'm <laughs> so imbued with Veda and Vedantic knowledge that I find it difficult to get my head around. Yes, yeah. well, there's 
in India, there were so many different philosophies. And these different philosophies, they will appeal to different people according to their maturity of mind. But are we one or are we many? We all experience ourselves as I am one. So if, we, if our aim is to know ourselves, our aim is to know the one, when does the many appear? The many appear only in waking and dream. In sleep, there's no experience of multiplicity. There's an experience just of oneness. So it's only when we rise as ego in waking and dream, and ego is what is called chit jadagranti. Chit jadagranti means chit is the pure awareness I am. Jada is, means what is not aware, that is the body, the five sheaths are not aware. So when, the, when this awareness and what is not awareness are conflated as one, that conflation, that, that not formed by the entanglement of chit and jada is what is called chit jada granti. So that is ego. So ego is neither the pure chit, nor is it the body, which is jada. It is the, it is the, the not formed by the entanglement of these two. But of course, Chit itself is never entangled. It's only in the view of ego that chit seems to be entangled with all this jada. But what is when when all the jada elements are removed, what remains is only chit. In sleep, what we experience is only that is only chit. It's only that fundamental such chit, the fundamental awareness of our own existence. I am. In sleep, we are not aware of anything other than I am. So that means our nature is one. So all multiplicity comes only when we rise as ego. So Bhagavan has an, Bhagavan's teachings are extremely simple, but they are also provide an answer to all these other points of view. That is, the other points of view may may be correct from their particular perspective, but if we see it through the eyes of Bhagavan's teachings. When do all these multi when does all this multiplicity come into existence? Only when we rise as ego. In the absence of ego, there's no multiplicity. That's our experience. That's what we experience every day. We go through these three sta three states of waking, dream, and sleep. In two of these states, we're aware of multiplicity. And and of course, we're in all three states, we're aware of our own existence. I am. But in two states, we're aware of multiplicity. In one state, we're aware of nothing other than I am. So what actually are we? We must be only be that fundamental awareness I am. And that fundamental awareness is, is one and indivisible. So that is what we actually are. That is the reality. Anything that appears and disappears is not real. Because if... if when in Vedanta, when we talk about real or unreal, real means what actually exists. Unreal means what does not actually exist, even if it seems to exist. So anything that comes into existence and ceases to exist doesn't actually exist. Because it's in order to actually exist, we must something must be what actually exists must be inherently existent. If something is inherently existent, intrinsically existent, it cannot cease to exist. 
Anything that comes into existence and ceases to exist is not intrinsically existent, and therefore it's borrowing its existence from something else. We can understand this with an analogy. Um, of course, existence is not a property, but we, we it, in, certain, in, in this respect, it's analogous to a property. So take the property of heat. Some things are intrinsically hot. Some things are hot, but not intrinsically hot. So supposing you you have a um, you're given a bowl of hot rice. Is rice intrinsically hot? No, it's not. So from where did that rice get its heat? It borrowed its heat from boiling water. And where did that boiling water borrow its heat? Water is not intrinsically hot, so it must have borrowed that heat from something else. It borrowed its heat from the pan, from the, from the cooking pot. But the cooking pot is not intrinsically hot. From where did it borrow its heat? It borrowed it from the fire. The fire is intrinsically hot, because whenever there's fire, there's heat. You can't have a, a fire that isn't hot. So the the because the 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 rice and the water and the pan are not intrinsically hot, they have to borrow their heat from something else. Something from ultimately they have to borrow it from something that's intrinsically hot, like fire. The, if we apply this to existence, anything that comes into existence and ceases to exist is not intrinsically existent. So it's borrowing its existence from something else. All these phenomena, they appear and disappear. So they are not intrinsically existent. From where do they borrow their semi-existence? They borrow it from ego, because it's only in the view of ego that they seem to exist. But even ego appears and disappears. It comes into existence in, when we wake up in the morning, it ceases to exist when we fall asleep. It comes into existence when we begin to dream. It ceases to exist when we dream, when we merge back into sleep. So ego is not intrinsically existent. So from where does ego borrow its existence? From Satchit, the one ultimate existence, I am. So because that element of I is in ego, the pure, the pure I is an element of ego, Ego derives its semi-existence as ego from that real existence I am. So what actually exists is only I am. So I am alone is real, everything else is unreal. Is that clear? Yeah, that's, that's fantastic. May I ask another question? Yes, yes, certainly. So I've, I've done a lot of karma yoga, back to yoga under some quite reputable people for my mm. stage that was fine but when i came across ramana's picture and his 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 books maybe poor translations whatever it touched me so deeply but i didn't know where to start with it but i feel like you know you've reminded me about him this has come yeah. up again and it's almost like through through whatever practice and love of uh, vedanta and so forth there's this, just this feeling of there's a current of being or just a sense of in my heart that yeah. I'm always at home. There's this peace. Michael can be yeah. as neurotic as he likes, as mad as he likes, believing what he likes, all kinds mm. of crazy stuff. But it is, is that uh, an echo 
or or is that is that the I am is that for me to you know with the self investigation I find it really helpful not to have to ask who am I but just to look and see yeah 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 that is what that's what Bhagavan means by self investigation pivotal, pivotal yeah landmark you know yeah. I can go with that I can run with yeah. that and then not having to sit for formal meditations yeah plus yeah I mean there's no harm in sitting for formal meditation but we don't we we are aware I am whether we are sitting or standing or talking or walking or whatever so that that sort of meditation is the turning the true meditation uh, this, this meditation taught by Bhagavan is a turning of our attention inwards so it's got nothing to do with body so whether you're sitting or lying or standing or whatever makes no difference the point is the attention should be on ourselves and you are, you say you weren't sure where to start Bhagavan's teachings start from the starting point and end with the in the same starting point namely I where we where do, from where can this ego arise it can only arise from ourselves it can only arise from the pure I because what exists in sleep is only the pure I that, that pure awareness I am from that this ego rises and into that ego subsides so that is the reality that is our starting point our own being that is the starting point and the end point and I crave that so desperately <laughs> but we are that we are already that it's not something far away from ourselves it may seem to be far away from ourselves because we are so strongly attached to all these things that appear and disappear but the, none of these things could appear or disappear if we weren't there to uh, be aware of them. And we who are aware of them, the one thing that we are constantly aware of is our own being, I am. So the one thing that is real is only this fundamental awareness, I am, which is not something other than ourselves. It's our own very self, it's our own very being, it's our own reality. So it's ever available to us. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Yeah. And this, according to Bhagavan, this is the culmination of the path of bhakti. That is, in the, generally in the path of bhakti, God is taken to be something other than ourselves. But ultimately, how can God be something other than ourselves? If God was something other than ourselves, he would be a limited God. Because anything that is other, so we cannot be other than God, and God cannot be other than ourselves if God is infinite. So God is our own being, our own reality. So the, the, when, the, when the, the bhakti turns from devotion to a God conceived as something other than ourselves, to a recognition that God is that which is shiny in our heart as our own being, I am, that is, the, that is what Bhagavan calls Parabhakti Tattva, that is the very nature of supreme devotion. So attending to I am is the, is the pinnacle of the path of devotion. And by attending to I am, ego, that brings about the subsidence of ego, in other words, the surrender of ourselves to God. 
which is what bhakti is all about. The ultimate aim of bhakti is to give ourselves wholly to God. Because love is not about what you can get, but what you give. If you truly love a person, you don't think, oh, what can I get from this person? What can I do for this person? What can I give this person? So the greatest love for God is to give ourselves to God. And we can give ourselves to God, who is our own being, only by merging back into our being. So this is the, the pinnacle of the path of devotion is surrender. And surrender means giving ourselves which is achieved only by holding on to our own being, which is God. <clears throat> Thank you. So this is, as Bhagavan said, this path is karma, bhakti, yoga, and jnana. It's the culmination of all these different paths. Thank you for, for being such a humble and pure instrument of the <laughs> whatever. Don't, don't thank me. I, that is, this person is incidental. All this is coming from Bhagavan. <laughs> we all have to be eternally grateful to Bhagavan for giving us such simple and clear teachings. So all I'm doing is I'm just pointing out what Bhagavan has taught, has taught us. So I really, my role is incidental. You're a pretty good hollow reed. <laughs> I, unfortunately, I, I wish I was more hollow. There are too many bastards in here even to be qualified as being a hollow reed. But Bhagavan can use even the most worthless instrument to do his work if he wants to. The subsidence of the ego answers my other question, how to deal with the person, Michael, being in the world mm. that, that with the, in terms of the Kashayas, because automatically when we're more self-attentive then it takes the sting out of the ego the vengeance the tendencies for yeah, yeah. Uh, retaliation yeah how michael should live in this world need not concern you let <laughs> michael take care of himself you attend to yourself the problem arises when we identify ourselves with this person called michael or whoever yes Every time he wakes up. Yeah. <laughs> Michael is innocent. Uh, I that identifies itself as I am Michael, that is the mischief maker. That is ego. Did we move on to the next yes, question? Yes, yes. Um, the next one is, I face this dilemma as I get more into the practice. I believe that my religious beliefs, such as worshipping Shiva, Vishnu, Bhavani, and, and so on, has brought me to Bhagwan's path. But now to move away from these, just to focus on I am, um, is moving away from these lifelong practices. Um, I love visiting and praying in temples but I'm also drawn to Maharishi's path. How do I transition? It, we, this again is where understanding comes in. That is Shiva or Vishnu or any other form of God cannot be other than our own being. That is the reality. We, we see God 
initially, when we start on the path of devotion, we take God to be something other than ourselves, something infinitely greater than ourselves. But if the God we are worshipping is the infinite whole, if he's anything less than the infinite whole, he's an imperfect God. So God, by definition, has to be the fullness of being, the infinite whole, the, the paripurna vastu. He cannot be anything other than that. So if he is the, the fullness of being, how can we be anything other than him? So God is most intimately present in our heart. The, the, the truest temple of God is not the temple that is temple or church or mosque or synagogue or whatever we call it. It is not the building outside. It is in our own heart. So if we want to come truly close to God, we can come truly close to him only in our own heart. If you go to a temple or a, a church or a synagogue or a mosque, there'll be restrictions. You can't go, you can't go to a mulasanam. You can't touch the, the bigraha. There's so many rules and regulations. But if you go into your own heart, you can merge and become one with God in your own heart. So we we should not see this as as an abandoning of the old devotional practices, we should see this as the culmination of those devotional practices. That is where all these devotional practices have been leading us, to the recognition that God is not something out there. God is our own reality. God is what is ever shining in our heart as our own being. I am. Aham Brahmasmi. Brahman is that which shines as I. I am that I am. God is that which is always shining in the heart of each and every one of us as I. He is our own being. Yeah, Michael, I think the idea that there might be a conflict between these two things is perhaps a little bit... Um... Uh, sort of a bit problematic. I mean, uh, after all, we go about our daily activities, you know, um, nothing really stops. Um, but the more and more we become uh, sort of, uh, we sort of merge or just relax in uh, what we truly are. And uh, as long as, you know, if you enjoy going to temples or whatever else, uh, there's nothing wrong with that. As long as you uh, remain uh, within and don't start projecting it out or something like that. As long as you don't see the division, I, yeah. I'm not sure that there is a problem. It, I it, think it's that... a matter of understanding when you recognize that the God in the tem in, that you go to see in the temple is the same God that is shining in you as I. But in, the, in, in, in a temple, God is, is, um, is, is contained within a name and form. But the real nature of God is boundless. So his boundless existence can be experienced in our own heart as our own being. And then he exists not only in the temple, he ex I mean, everything, is there anything that is other than God? So he exists everywhere. But in order to see him everywhere, we first need to see him in ourselves. If we cannot see him in ourselves, we cannot see him everywhere.
And when we Thank see you, him Michael. in ourselves, we mm. will not, we will cannot remain separate from him. We seeing him in ourselves means being swallowed by him and just being him. Thank you, Michael. Right. Uh, I'm from Hyderabad. Yes. So, my reverence and uh, gratefulness to you. Oh, reverence to, to Bhagavan only. <laughs> whatever is there, uh, the moment uh, I was listening to you, just I lost my consciousness. First of all, I am grateful to you. But one and consciousness, Bhagavan, course, no you may lose consciousness of other things, but one consciousness yeah. you cannot lose is the consciousness yeah. I am. Yeah. That is the uh, ever shining place, consciousness. Yeah, one place Bhagavan says this. Devotee is great, greater than the deity, or the worshipper is greater than the worshipped. As you are saying, we are always the first person we are neglecting. Thank you so much for highlighting. So, first projection is our thought and body. Then mm. we are seeing the external senses and all. So, uh, we are not acquainted with this uh, deeper or Karana Sharia, which you started the first part of your lecture today. Yeah. So, we, we, we are that, missing. That's a mistake. That's a mistake. People think the Karana Sarira is something hidden. It is not. The Karana Sarira yeah. is what manifests in us as our own likes, dislikes, desires, attachments. The Karana Sarira consists only of the vasanas, the inclinations, but of the seeds that rise as likes, dislikes, desires, and so on. That is the Karana Sarira. So we're always aware of the different manifestations of that. So there is no difference between the waking state and the, the uh, your dream state, as you are saying. Yeah, they the same. We are they're without same. Karana Sharira or even Sukshma Sharira at all. Just uh, the self or the manifestation or unmanifested, the self, that's all. What Bhagavan says about the five sheaths, in verse 5 of Uludhunapadu, he said, the body is a form of five sheaths. Therefore, all five are included in the term body. So, in waking and dream, all five sheaths are present. In sleep, ego is absent. Therefore, all the five sheaths are absent. There is a, one explanation that it is usually given is that what remains in sleep is the karana sarira. But how can karana sarira remain without ego? Because it's, it's, karana sarira exists only in the view of ego. So in the absence of ego, what remains in sleep is just pure awareness. It's only for those who lack subtle understanding and who want an explanation. How can ego come out of sleep if it wasn't, if ego doesn't exist in sleep, how does it come out of sleep? Then to satisfy such people, they are told, oh, it remains there in the seed form as Bakarana Sarira. But why should we believe Bakarana Sarira exists in sleep? Do we, has anyone ever seen Bakarana Sarira in sleep? Do we, do we experience any likes, dislikes, desires, attachments, any vasanas at all in sleep? No. All we experience in sleep is our own being. So, they, 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 a lot of explanations are given for those who lack subtle understanding. But if we go deeper into this subject, the five sheaths appear together and disappear together. They appear with ego, 
they disappear with ego. One more doubt is that uh, both Ramana Maharshi and Nisargatha Maharaj says the all the bodies are within you. You are having the all the bodies. Sometimes it's said as a Virat Purusha, means hmm. like our five senses, unlimited five senses, or the Pancha Tattva elements. So that is not Bhagavan. That is all this. Um, this is all more Sankhya philosophy. Bhagavan's philosophy is very very simple. When ego, the first thought is ego. When ego rises, it projects everything else. In the absence of ego, there's nothing else. So Bhagavan has simpler, that, that is, if we read the different texts, there are so many different explanations are given because people have so many different beliefs and so on, and different explanations are given to satisfy different people. But 99.999% of philosophy is of no use to us. The only ph philosophy is useful only to the extent to which it points our attention back to ourselves. So that is why Bhagavan has given us the simple essence of philosophy. He's cut off all the unnecessary, because whether you go to, whether Indian philosophy or Chinese philosophy or Western philosophy, countless different views are there. What, how are all these things going to help us? The, the problem arises because we have risen as ego, because we take ourselves to be something other than what we actually are. What we actually are is just the pure awareness I am. But instead of being aware of ourselves as just that pure awareness, we're now aware of ourselves as I am this person, I am Amanat, I am this body. That is the problem. So the, the solution to that problem is to be aware of ourselves as we actually are. So the, the vast majority of philosophy is of no use to us. So uh, in Viveka in Chudamani, Shankara refers to uh, Sabdajala Maharanya, the great dark forest of sounds. And Bhagavan, in his Tamil translation, he, he interpreted that as Sastrajala Maharanya, the great, um, the great uh, forest, dark forest of, of sastras, of spiritual texts. So there's, philosophy is endless. If you allow the mind to go outwards, there's no end. That is what, in the story of Arunachala, the origin of Arunachala, that is what... Brahma in that story represents the outward going intellect. He goes up and up and up. And in the end, he has to come back with a lie. Vishnu represents the, the inward going mind, the, the, the mind that sinks and subsides back within. There only you will, only by turning back within can we get true clarity. If we allow our mind to go outwards, there's no end to philosophy and science and religion and politics and uh, different beliefs, different views. It's endless. If we want salvation, we shouldn't look outside. We need to look back within. Or there's one simple question we need to find the answer to. Who am I? If we know what we actually are, all problems are solved. Until then, we're in a, we're in a mess. Thank you. <laughs>
So Bhagavan's teachings, Bhagavan has simplified all the philosophy, given us the only, those elements of philosophy that are really useful, that point our attention back within. So Bhagavan's philosophy is such a practical philosophy. Uh, the next question, Michael, is yeah. uh, could you explain the differences between Ajatavad, Drishti-Srishti, and Srishti-Drishtivad? Okay, Srishti-Drishti, Srishti means creation, Drishti means seeing. So according to Srishti-Drishtivada, first the world is, exists, and then we see it. So the, the vast majority of... Um, of beliefs about the world are, are shrishti drishti. That is whether religious beliefs or scientific beliefs. They all believe the world existed there, and we are born in this world, and then we see it. That is shrishti drishti. So whether the, whether the Big Bang theory or any other scientific theory of the origin of this universe, or any religious belief, whether like uh, in the Bible, God created the world in seven days, or um, or this uh, the, the Brahma created the world from his mind, or whatever. All these, are, all these are assuming that the world exists out there. The world exists whether we see it or not. That is Shristi Drishti. That is so long as we believe that our mind will be going outwards. So to put an end to that, Bhagavan teaches us. Drishti Shrishti. Drishti Shrishti means that there is no creation, Shrishti, independent of Drishti. Why do we say this world exists? Because we see it. If, if we don't see the world, it doesn't exist. An illustration of this is dream. In dream, so long as we're dreaming, there seems to be a world out there. And the world, that world, we assume that world exists independent of our perception of it. But when we wake up, we recognize that world didn't exist at all, except in our perception. It wasn't that the dream world was created and then we came into that world and saw it. There's no dream world other than our perception of it. So that is Drishti Shrishti. If um, so, the if drishti shrishti identifies that the root problem is seeing. The world seems to exist because we see it. So who is it who sees the world? We see the world only when we see ourselves as a person within the world. When you dream, for example, you always dream yourself to be a person within the dream. The person you take yourself to be in the dream is not the dreamer. But he's part of a dream. You who take yourself to be that person of a dreamer. So they, now we 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 identify we experience ourselves as I am this body. But this body is our own creation. The body is just it's it's our own. Um, we we are just dreaming this body, dreaming this world. So, but 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 why do we see this world? Because we take ourselves to be a body. Why do we take ourselves to be a body? Because we don't know ourselves as we actually are. If we, if instead of letting our attention go out towards this body and world, we turn our attention back towards I, to know who am I, 
ego will thereby subside and merge back into its source, and what then remains is pure being. When we experience ourselves as pure being, we will know that we had never risen as ego. But pure being is immutable, it never undergoes any change whatsoever. Since we never rose as ego, we never saw anything other than ourselves. So, the ultimate truth that is revealed by this self-investigation is ajata, but nothing has ever come into existence. Ajata means not born. That means nothing has appeared, nothing has come into existence. So, according to Drishti Shishtivada, it accepts the semi-existence of ego and the semi-existence of the world. Because if, if Bhagavan told us, oh, there's no ego, no world, nothing is there, how is that going to help us? It's not, it's, it's, if, you, if you go to a doctor with a serious ailment and the doctor says, oh, there's no illness there, that doctor is not going to help you. So Bhagavan uh, makes a concession. He, he accepts the semi-existence of ego and the semi-existence of the world. But he says, this world seems to exist only because you see it. So who sees it? Only ego. And ego is a false awareness of itself, of, of ourselves. That is, ego is, is I. So when, when I am aware of myself as I am this person, that is a wrong awareness of myself. So the, in order to know what I actually am, I need to leave aside this person, this body, world, everything, and investigate only I. When we investigate I, we will find that what we actually are is immutable pure being. Since we are pure being and have never undergone any change, we have never become ego. Since we've never become ego, no world has ever come into existence, because the world exists only in the view of ego. So the ultimate truth is experience is ajata. But Bhagavan made it clear, ajata is not a teaching. Because in ajata, there's neither a teacher nor anyone in need of any teaching, nor any need for teaching, nor any sadhana, nor anything. So ajata is not a teaching. But we are told ajata is the ultimate truth. So that's just a prior intimation. If we investigate ourselves and know what we actually are, then what we will experience is the truth of ajata. But nothing other than ourself has ever existed or ever even seemed to exist. Nothing has ever appeared or disappeared. I hope that's an adequate clarification of that. The next question is, uh, I have developed an aversion towards understanding any concepts or terms that usually are used in philosophical discussions or discourses. As Krishnamurti says, I have come to believe that analysis is paralysis. I have an intellectual understanding of self-inquiry and just want to practice and pray to my Bhagavan's picture, is it enough? That is, um, if we are wise, we will, we will discriminate and know what concepts are useful, what concepts are not useful. There, there is a, to understand Bhagavan's teachings is very useful. If we want to follow this path of self-investigation, we need to understand his teachings. If we don't understand his teachings, how can we how can we put them into practice? So understanding is necessary. But what is what we need to avoid is is 
is um, is taking on unnecessary mental baggage. In other words, taking on unnecessary concepts. So to say, um, what did Krishnamurti say? Something is paralysis. Uh, analysis is paralysis. That is nonsense because we need to analyze our experience. If we don't analyze our experience, how can we distinguish ourselves from all that we experience? So we need to analyze that that is there is a certain amount of philosophy is necessary in order to get a clear understanding of what we are so we need to analyze now i experience myself as if i'm this body but is this body actually what i am we need to analyze that in order to understand but this body is not what we actually are we still experience ourselves with this body but at least we understand that this body cannot be what we actually are because we exist even in the absence of this body in, in dream and in sleep so this body cannot be what we actually are so analysis is necessary but analysis is only preliminary and that analysis is only to give us the clarity of understanding in order to investigate ourselves so 99.99% .99 of analysis is going in the wrong direction. That's no use to us. But the analysis that leads us back, leads us back to investigate ourselves, that analysis is very useful. Viveka is, is, is one of the necessary qualifications for following the path of Vedanta. In fact, I think the very first qualification they give in all the texts is Nitya Anitya Vastu Viveka, distinguishing the, the permanent from the impermanent. Obviously, we have to analyze to do so. So, so it, this, these, it sounds very nice. Analysis is paralysis, but it's really, it's like so many things Krishnamurti said, it's really empty if we, if we, if we consider it deeply. So we shouldn't be against all analysis. We should just be wise in what we analyze. We should be wise in what we aim for. So it's and it's useful to analyze our experience of ourselves in order to determine what we are and what we are not. Once we understand what we are and what we are not, we can then investigate ourselves. If we cannot distinguish ourselves from what we are not, we, we will be investigating the wrong thing. So we shouldn't be against all philosophy. We should, we should, we should be wise in the philosophy that we choose, the philosophy that we seek to understand. But that philosophy that helps us to understand what we actually are, and the means by which we are to know what we actually are, that philosophy is helpful. So we shouldn't throw out the baby with the bathwater. First, take the baby out of the bathwater, separate the baby from the bathwater by careful analysis, then throw away the bathwater and keep the baby. The baby is our own being. I am. Well, the next question is, uh, it's on the problem of evil. And the question is, I have no difficulty seeing Bhagwan's will or grace functioning in my life, whether I like what occurs or not. But I have difficulty understanding how terrible things happening to others, especially those who seem to be innocent or who don't know about Bhagwan, could be associated with anything like Bhagwan's will or grace. Is there an explanation in accordance with his teaching? Um, 
I don't know if you were there before this, at the very beginning of the meeting, before we uh, before we actually started recording, we were talking about um, uh, good and bad. What determines what is good or bad? It's our own likes and dislikes. We we will all agree uh, war is bad, murder is bad. But why is it bad? Because we don't like these things. If we were, if we could rise above likes and dislikes, there would be no good or evil. It's our own likes and dislikes that make us say this is good, that is bad. So, and we we all we all make this mistake of having likes and dislikes because it's the very once we rise as ego. We take ourselves to be a body, so those things that are conducive to our, our comfort and convenience and survival in this body, those things are good. But things that are detrimental, we think are bad. So I want to live long in this body. Um, if suddenly a doctor tells me you've got cancer, that is bad. Obviously, it's bad because I don't want to. I want to live long. So this cancer is a threat to my very existence in this body. So cancer is bad. Illness is bad. We all this good and bad is created by our own mind. It's all a, our own judgment of things. But actually, everything is just as it is. We are all born. We're all going to die. We're going to go through so many experiences experiences that we find to be pleasant, experiences that we find to be unpleasant. But why do we find some experiences pleasant and others unpleasant? The experiences we like, we find pleasant. The experiences we dislike, we find unpleasant. So it all comes back to our likes and dislikes. And who is it who has these likes and dislikes? It is ego. So the root of all these problems is ego. So if you want to say there's an evil in this world, the root evil is ego. But though ego is the root of all e evil, ego has within it an element of reality, I am. That is the ultimate good. So let us leave all the adjuncts which give rise to the evil and hold on to the, the reality, I am. That is the way to transcend good and evil. I hope that is an adequate answer to that question. There are so many ways we can answer it. We can say, whatever happens, it is for the good of all those. That, that is, we're all experiencing the fruits of our karmas, and the fruits of our karmas are allotted to us by God in such a way that will be most conducive to our spiritual development. We can explain it all in these ways. But why do we take certain things to be good and certain things to be bad? It's all according to our likes and dislikes. So if we want to... To be free of good and evil, we need to be free of likes and dislikes. But it is the very nature of ego to have likes and dislikes. So to be, in order to be free of likes and dislikes, we need to be free of ego. So long as we rise as ego, we can, we can diminish the extent to which we have likes and dislikes. But we cannot be totally free of likes and dislikes so long as we rise as ego. So we have to reduce the strength of our likes and dislikes as much as possible in order to get rid of ego. But we can get rid of the likes and dislikes completely only by getting rid of their root, namely ego. So I hope that's an adequate answer to that question.
Um, the next question is, most people think of love in terms of subject and object, I love you. Yet Sadhu Om writes in Path of Sri Ramana, you are love. Love must necessarily be yourself only. Could love exist as a separate reality apart from yourself? All love is not other than yourself. Could you please explain this, Michael? This is what Bhagavan, or this is one of the implications of what Bhagavan says in the first sentence of Nana. That first sentence was not actually part of the original answers that Bhagavan gave to Shiva Prakash and Palai. When he wrote that, when he rewrote those questions and answers in the form of an essay, he added a paragraph. And in that paragraph, he, um, he, he, he what he says is, since all sentient beings like always to be happy and without what is called misery since for everyone there is the greatest love only for oneself and since uh, happiness alone is the cause of love in order to experience that happiness which is one's own real nature which one experiences daily in sleep which is devoid of mind oneself knowing oneself is necessary so the main purpose of that first sentence is to argue that happiness is our real nature and therefore to experience happiness we need to know ourselves as we actually are that's the main point but in order to argue that we have to bring in love because we all love to be happy without misery we all have greatest love for ourselves and happiness is the cause of love when Bhagavan says happiness is the cause of love, what he means is we love those things that make us happy, we dislike those things that make us unhappy. So the fact that we love ourselves more than we love anything else means that we ourselves are the source of all happiness. And since happiness is the cause of love, we are also love. So we are both, love is our real nature, that is the implication. As you say, people generally um believe love is for something other than ourselves this is one of the main arguments of dualistic uh, theologians that is most theologians will say but um love is always for another uh, therefore uh, only if god is other than yourself you can love him or something like that they they, they have their own arguments but they're, when they say love is always for another, they are overlooking the one most obvious thing, but we all love ourselves more than we love anything else. In fact, we love other things because of our love for ourselves. Why do we love our, our husband or wife, our children, our parents? Because they, they are ours and they contribute to our happiness. If they start giving us endless trouble, our love for them will naturally diminish. We, we love them because we expect them to be a source of happiness for ourselves. So we love those things that we think will contribute to our happiness. We dislike those things that we think will be uh, cause us misery. But the, the, the source of all, all love, all likes, uh, desires, and so on, is ourself. And we ourselves are pure love. Uh, that that is the the greatest love is the love that we have for ourselves. There's no love greater than that, but and there's no wrong in loving ourselves because self love is our very nature. The wrong lies in the fact we take ourselves to be something other than what we actually are. 
if I take myself to be this person, Michael, then I love this person, Michael, and I'm so concerned about this person. I take every effort to make sure this person is well taken care of, is um, is uh, is well fed and uh, properly nourished and free of disease and um, uh, but, um, not disliked by other people or whatever. So I have so much love for this person, Michael, all selfishness rises out of self-love, but not the love for ourselves as we actually are, but love for ourselves as a person. If I take myself to be Michael, and if I'm so, uh, if I if I love myself as Michael so much, but I attach more importance to Michael than to anything else, I will to seek for my own benefit. I will. I will be uh, ruthless. I'll cause harm to others. That is the the. We see so many people in this world who don't care about others. They only care about their own gratification. They amass huge amounts of wealth. They uh, they uh, gain political power and all these things. Why? For myself. They're not doing it for others. That is the that is selfishness. That is born out of self-love, but it's born out of misdirected self-love. Because we take ourselves to be a person, but the pure self-love becomes something impure. But if we knew ourselves as we actually are, we would love ourselves as we actually are, then we would be perfectly selfless. That is, there would be no selfishness in us. Because we would not see anything other than ourselves. So we would love others as we love as ourselves as Bhagavan loved us, because in Bhagavan's view, we are not other than him. So he literally loves all, he, he knows all of us as himself, and therefore he loves all of us as himself. In the Bible it is said, love thy neighbor as thyself. But so long as we see our neighbor as someone other than ourselves, how can we truly, we cannot love them as ourselves, because we always have more love for ourselves than we have for others. So if we want to love our neighbor as ourselves, we need to know, we need to love ourselves as we actually are. We need to know our neighbor as none other than ourselves. And in order to know our neighbor as none other than ourselves, we need to know what we actually are. I hope that's an adequate answer to that question. The intelligent life in the universe, some of which may be millions of years older than us, would be would this be of the same source as us? <laughs> Does anything in the universe exist independent of ourselves? Who see who sees this universe in which we suppose there are so many life forms that may be millions of years older than us? I see it. So does this universe exist independent of the eye that sees it? If we believe in Shristi Drishtivad, if we believe this universe existed before we saw it and will exist after we cease seeing it then you can believe all such things. But according to Bhagavan, but I mean, Bhagavan asks us, why should you believe that anything exists independent of your perception of it? How can you possibly know that this universe exists other than in your own perception? Who is aware of this universe? I am. So how can we know there's any universe outside our awareness? So this universe and all the... Uh, so many different types of living beings in it and sentient beings, they all exist in the view of, in whose view? In the view of this ego. So does it, 
anything exists independent of ego, according to Bhagavan, no. If ego comes into existence, everything comes into existence. If ego doesn't exist, everything doesn't exist. So in your sleep, nothing else exists. Because you, 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 are, you as ego have merged back in your source, everything else merges with you. Only when you wake, when you rise as ego in waking or dream, does everything else appear. It's our own experience. Other things appear only when we rise as ego. When we rise as ego, we take ourselves to be a body and we see a world that seems to exist out there independent of ourselves. But what evidence is there that any world exists independent of our perception of it? So th that is all, of, if, we, if we understand Bhagavan's teachings correctly and understand the purpose, the aim of Bhagavan's teachings, it's all to stop our mind going outwards. Why should we care about, why should we be concerned about other, whether others are sentient or not sentient, whether they've been sentient billions, millions of years before us or anything, why should we be concerned about all these things? When we don't even know what we are, how can we know the truth of anything else? First, we must know our own reality before we can know the reality of anything else. If we know what we really are, then, every, then ego will be annihilated, everything else will cease to exist, so our own reality is the reality of everything. So all of, that's why I said at the beginning, all of Bhagavan's teaching, the sole aim of Bhagavan's teaching is to constantly to point our attention back at ourselves. What is the use of knowing all? In Amavidde, Bhagavan says, what is the use of knowing all else um, uh, without knowing oneself? And what else is there to know when oneself is known? Um, okay, now I'll just get the, the passage. He says very, very beautifully. Kanne um, Aridalindri, without knowing oneself, Pinne Edu Arihil Ain. Without knowing oneself, then if one then knows. Uh, Anything else, what? So what? What's the use of it? What's the use of it? If one knows oneself, if one knows oneself, what exists to be known? Why Bhagavan said that? Because all other things seem to exist only when we rise as ego. And we rise as ego only when we don't know ourselves. If we know ourselves, ego will cease to exist, and everything else that exists in the view of ego will also cease to exist. So there'll be nothing else to know when we know ourselves. So all of Bhagavan's teachings are pointing our attention back to the, to the all-important need for us to know what we actually are. And to know what we actually are, we need to investigate ourselves. So all Bhagavan's teachings are pointing only to this simple practice of self-investigation. This is what Bhagavan's teachings are all about. So all questions about anything other than ourselves ultimately are just pointing, uh, uh, taking our mind away from ourselves towards other things. Whereas our task is to, to draw our mind back and point it only towards ourselves, direct it only to go within. So we must be willing to give up this whole world, 
Because so long as we are attached to this world, or attached to anything in the world, or attached to any belief about this world, our mind will be going outwards. We, we, we need to let the world be real, let it be unreal. Let it be happiness, let it be misery. Let it be, um, uh, let there be other awareness or let there be no other awareness. None of this need concern us. Who am I? That is our, to know who am I, that is our sole aim. And that's the, what, whatever Bhagavan teaches us about the world and about God and everything, it all points us back to the need for us to know ourselves. There is a question from Elena. Thank you. Uh, Michael, um, uh, there was a question uh, during uh, uh, this, this uh, session uh, about... Uh, this uh, feeling when when we uh, uh, um, do in self investigation that uh, it's like um, uh, I I understood for me I I mean I mean I mean I, I uh, also felt something like maybe I understand what it is all what it is about maybe uh, of course I'm not sure but uh, maybe you will uh, tell also explain make clear again uh, this point that um Pagavans, I, I actually forgot unfortunately uh, sorry when he says uh, about that that when you uh, are doing self-investigation it is like uh, he compares it to dog who is following uh scent of uh, his master and uh, uh and you say that uh, it is quite obvious thing that i am so i mean that uh, the only thing that uh, has to be done is, uh, our attention has to be 100 percent uh directed towards this i mean this i amness that yeah. i am uh which i understand yes i mean that uh, this is the this is the point actually uh, yeah. and we have to be just uh, mature enough to uh, forget about i mean forget in a sense that we have to like transcend it i mean that everything else and uh, understand that the only thing that makes sense or is really worth it it to do it's to just be so i mean that but uh Pahavan says uh, uh, that um i mean again he compares uh, the process it's like following the scent of your master so i mean that it is not quite i mean it, even though we we understand that it is i am yes this this is the everybody understands i am but uh, to be able to uh always like be it is not that 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 is a uh, uh, thing to do so we have to do, that is why self-investigation is uh, required and that is why i mean we are doing it so i mean that um could you please uh, tell something about this uh, this caravan's uh, i mean uh, like explanation of this process like following this scent of master okay um when in this analogy, the, the scent will lead the dog to the master, but the scent is not the master. So in this analogy, the scent is ego. Why, is, why will this unfailingly lead to its source? Because within ego is that element, that, that is that real element, I am. 
So by following ego, it leads us back to the source, which is the pure I am. So ego is the impure I, the I mixed and conflated with adjuncts. But if we hold on to this impure I, it will lead back to the pure I. So Bhagavan gave different analogies to explain things from different points of view. Because for many people, it is difficult for them to grasp, but but the ultimate reality is what they experience as I am here and now. Because they're so um they they they're so uh, strongly identified with themselves as I am this person. Um to, so I is so strongly conflated with uh, this uh, identity, this false identity, but it's difficult for them to recognize that I am, without this identity, the pure I am. So it's some, sometimes Bhagavan, sometimes he, that, that if we pay close attention to the way Bhagavan describes it, sometimes he describes this practice as investigating ego. Sometimes he in, in, describes it as investigating the source of ego. Sometimes he describes it as investigating the pure I am. So what is the, why does he explain it in different ways? Because the ego obviously isn't the pure I am. The source from which ego rises is the pure I am. So whether you say investigate the source or investigate the pure I am, it's the same. But now we are, experiencing that pure I am mixed with our impurities. But so long as we, let's not worry about the impurities. So long as we hold on to that I am, it will lead us back to the source. If you want to see the reality, what the snake actually is, what you need to look at is the snake. The snake is not real. But when you look at the snake, if you look at it carefully enough, what will you see? Oh, it's not a snake, it's only a rope. So though when you start looking at it, you seem to be looking at a snake, when you look at it closely enough, you will see, oh, all along what I was actually looking at was only a rope. It was never a snake. So but we can say the snake is like that master scent, but leads back to the master who is the rope. It's just different ways of explaining the same thing, different um, from from different perspectives, we can say. Yes. So, because there are some people, you, you will find in some books like talks and so on, people ask, Bhagavan, when you say, uh, uh, inquire who am I, what is the I we have to in uh, uh, inquire about? Is it the ego or the self? Because for them, there are two things. There's the ego and there's the self. So for such people, Bhagavan says, investigate ego. Because they don't understand that ego is nothing other than the self. So because they think in terms of two eyes, there's a big big self and a little self. Bhagavan says, forget about big self. Just investigate this little self. This little self, like the scent will lead to the master, the little self will in, uh, unfailingly lead you to the big self. But actually, there are no two selves. There's only one self. It's not the, the snake doesn't lead you to a rope. The snake is never anything other than a rope. So when though you maybe think you are looking at a snake, what you're actually looking at is a rope. So how do you recognize it as a rope? You have to look at it more carefully. If you look at it more carefully, oh, what I was looking at was all along only a rope. 
Yes, but uh, anyway, I mean, that it means process anyway. So, I mean, that... Uh, yeah, of course, there's a process. There's a process because, uh, I mean, even if we understand that what we experience as I am, that is the ultimate reality, we are still not experiencing that I am in its pure condition. We're still mix experiencing it mixed with this, uh, uh, with this, with the adjuncts as I am this uh, person. But it's a matter of just understanding. If we understand that that I am without these adjuncts is the ultimate reality. That's what we need to understand. But not everyone is able to understand that so clearly. So for them, it's more suitable to tell, just investigate this ego. Don't don't worry about uh, uh, um, the ultimate reality. Just investigate the ego. That will lead you to the that is the 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 master sent, but will lead you unfailingly to the to your master to your source. Yes, Michael. But okay. But then uh, now I'm a little bit like confused because um, you said that uh, some or people can just investigate ego, which is yes, we understand this uh, this uh, case of snake and rope. Yes, it is. Of course, it is. It is like this. But uh, uh, another thing is, uh, you said it, that... it is not the very two different ways of investigating, investigating ego or investigating I am. It's the same investigation. It's a matter of the understanding. Some people are not able to understand, don't have such a subtle understanding, so they still think in terms of the ego I am the, the real I. But actually, there's only one eye. There's never been never two eyes. The same one eye, when mixed with adjunct, is called ego. Without adjunct, it's the pure eye. Yes. So uh, it's just a matter of understanding. Yes, I mean that. Uh, okay, for example, we understand this. Yeah. Let's let's say we, we understand this, and if we understand this, then uh, practice remains the same. Yes, exactly. exactly the same. There's only one practice. However you understand it, the practice is the same. <laughs> yeah. This is the idea, that practice is the same. But uh, on the other hand, uh, for example, um, uh, Pahavan mentions also uh, this I-I, um, uh, like um, when you just even say I-I, it, it, it leads you to, to this place and remains you there. Yeah. So that um, the, the uh, I think the... Uh, the uh, main thing is just like uh, uh, develop this uh, satvasana. Actually, yeah, yes, uh, yes. This is the this uh, satvasana. It has to push away all the rest vasanas. I mean that just uh, and and just uh, remains itself only. I mean that only yes. this love, yes. love yes. knowing ourselves and has to has to uh, remain. So I mean that. Uh, Whatever we are doing, anyway, we, are, we like even though even though we understand that I am, and uh, this is the only thing that actually exists. And but um, at the same time, we have to uh, uh, in the process of self investigation, we have to investigate like who am I, right? I mean that to, to yeah, to, yeah. I mean, that is, we are investigating ourselves in order to know who or what we actually are. How do we investigate ourselves? Just by attending to ourselves. I mean, now we're experiencing ourselves mixed and conflated with adjuncts, but the more we attend to our, but we, what we are to attend to is not the adjuncts that we take ourselves to be, to the, as Bhagavan says in, in, in one place in Maharshi's Gospel, 
he explains about uh, Chichada Granti, but ego is the Chichada Granti, and he says, in your investigation into the source of the Ahambriti, Ahambriti is another term for ego, but I thought, or ego, in your, in your investigation into the source of the Ahambriti, you take the essential chit aspect of ego, and for that reason, it leads unfailingly to the realization of the pure awareness that you actually are. Something to that effect. So, well, though ego is this conflation, I am this body, we're not investigating this body, we're not investigating the adjunct, we're investigating only the I am. Yes, I mean, that the, the idea is to, to be aware of I am. Yes, exactly. Well, not, I mean that, uh, to be attentive, we're always aware of I am, but we need to be attentively aware I am. I mean that uh, this um, uh, practice itself, it purifies, uh, purifies, yes. it, it, it just uh, destroys all other things that yes. uh, uh, still can like uh, uh, create some interest for you. I mean, yeah, I mean. Yes, yes. And you, you mentioned satvasana. Satvasana is the love to know and to be what we actually are. To be by practicing more and more, that satvasana grows stronger, and to the extent that the satvasana grows stronger, the other vasanas grow weaker. Exactly, I think it is the, the most important thing, actually. Yes, yes. The love, as Bhagavan said, bhakti is the mother of jnana. Love is the key to success in this path. Without love, we cannot succeed. I don't know how, uh, for example, underst intellectual understanding and uh, love, uh, I, I think they somehow relate to each other. I mean, they that... are related, because if you love to know a subject, you, you will think about it, and to the extent you think about it and try to understand it, you'll understand it. So if we had, if this, this Bhagavan's teachings are not actually difficult to understand, they're very simple. But why for most people it would seem very, it seemed all far too abstract or very, because they're not interested. Why it seems so clear and so obvious to us? Whereas if you try to tell this to all these brilliant academic philosophers who've written big, big volumes on philosophy, if you try to explain this simple philosophy, they won't get it because they're not interested. They're more interested in knowing about the world and knowing other things and writing yes. big papers and uh, having academic discussions and um, more and more complicated ways of uh, trying to understand things. They, because their minds are going outward, they're interested in knowing things other themselves. If they had a liking to know themselves, then they would be a, this would appeal to them. I think so this is... will naturally appeal to anyone who 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 whose mind is simple who is who wants to know the simple truth yes now you said very important thing because even uh people who are interested in spirituality we are not even mentioning academics and so on i mean yeah. science, even 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 these people sometimes uh, have very big difficulties they even uh, when uh, the question comes that uh, you have to direct all uh, your attention to uh, i am even they even forget what attention even means <laughs> so, yeah yeah and some of them will say no I'm, i don't want to know anything about i am i want to know god i love god so i'm only interested in god so because they don't realize that god is that which is shining within them as i am so yeah it's all according to the um as bhagavan said it's according to the purity of the antakarana according to the purity of the mind so it's, for some people <clears throat> that is, if we're drawn to Bhagavan's path, none of these other 
um, yogas or tantras or mantras or these different paths will appeal to us. But if we're not drawn to this path, there'll be something else that is there that is suitable for us at our present stage of spiritual development. Exactly. Uh, and uh, actually, it is also a matter of understanding. You have to yes. really, like you say, you have to understand what it is all about. It, yes, it, yes, yes. Yeah. And understanding is important because understanding is, is the light that guides us in this path. But the understanding, to some extent, it comes from reading and thinking about Bhagavan's teachings. But the, the depth, real depth of understanding comes only by practicing his teachings. To yes. the extent to which we put the teachings into practice, they'll become very clear to us. <laughs> 